Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Colossians 1, 13 to 23. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you once, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, and has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So as we approach Easter on this day in which, looking toward the cross and the empty tomb, We're looking, I believe, at the very center of history. In many places, as in this passage, it's hard to trace or even say that things are in any kind of sequential order, any kind of normal beginning and end. Here Paul is talking about the incarnate Jesus, but he says he is before all things. Remember Jesus says, I am before Abraham. He's not talking about some other Jesus, as is clear, because this is the one who has achieved redemption. That is here, the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb are in mind. He is the head of the church. That is, the one who is before all things is the very one who has accomplished all these things. He is the firstborn from the dead, the one crucified and raised. And yet the same one, by this very fact, is before all things. So there's a kind of time bending here. In him all things hold together. He is the beginning. The beginning is in the middle of history. And notice this message about him. Paul says it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That is, he's picturing the gospel as having already been preached all over the world. And notice the opening sentence. We've been transferred from out of the kingdom of darkness. I think Paul is picturing throughout 
that the end is a presently accomplished fact. And he's running it together with what we might imagine is the middle and the beginning. That is, in the middle, Jesus' life, Jesus' death and resurrection. But he's saying, yes, but this is the beginning. So Paul is bending time and space and history and reading everything with Christ as the center. The beginning is in the end, and the end is in the beginning. The cross and the empty tomb are the decisive events of all history. And so this means the beginning of creation, the true beginning, is in Christ. I think we should take Paul quite literally here. According to the Martyology of Jerome, on March 25th, our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, conceived, and the world was made. If we insist on sticking to a kind of normal chronology, you know, a normal cause and effect and sequence, I think we're getting at part of the human problem in not seeing Christ as the center. There is a kind of false beginning giving rise to a failed understanding, an under, failed understanding of what creation is, of what a person is, of who God is. And the real moment of creation in the Spirit through Christ, this is the point in which true human life begins. Where is the Spirit? The Spirit is given through Christ. The example that I often turn to is Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7 contains Paul's example of the dynamic of the false incarnation. This is actually a phrase. I spoke to a young theologian this week, Jordan Wood. This is his phrase, and I really like it. In which the I would manipulate the law as the end point of desire. That is, that desire defines and consumes the self in Paul's picture. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then Romans 8 describes the undoing or displacement of this false creation, this false imaging. As one is born in the Spirit, one is found in Christ. One participates in the love of God. I think Romans 7 and 8 is simply a case in point of the sequence that we can often find in Scripture. That is that we can imagine two possible alternative beginnings. Remember back in Genesis? Actually, there are two alternative beginnings. In the Genesis account, you know, Adam, I believe, is just representative in some way of all humanity. And it says that God breathed the breath of life into him. And of course, the word there is spirit. But I believe the true inbreathing of the spirit occurs only when man is born in the Spirit, right? That's what the New Testament describes as happening in Christ. So the beginning is found only in the end which Christ brings about. Genesis 2 is a reality in the person of Christ. Being born in the Spirit is the initiation of the true imaging being in the likeness of God, being born in the Spirit. I believe it's nothing other than birth according to Christ in the Spirit. While in sin, I think there's a failure. That's the point, isn't it? That we're not really fully ourselves. We're not fully 
created, maybe we could say. We're certainly not fully in the image of God. So in Christ, there is a regeneration. Hippolytus pictures even the incarnation as beginning with the cross of Christ, flowing backward and forward, so that in becoming all in all, what is not complete is being made complete in the middle of history through Christ. And this end in the beginning, I believe that's portrayed in the Genesis 2 account, while Genesis 3 depicts the false beginning. You know, Adam is ignorant of God. He's really ignorant of himself. He's ignorant of the world. And that's displayed in his willingness to sin so readily. And so this historical beginning recounted in Genesis 3, it's really a false beginning, cut off from its true end. In this beginning, Adam rejected the deifying and divine and non-material birth. That is, he rejected birth in the spirit. He preferred the immediate, sensible things. And so he's condemned to death. He's condemned to mortality. He's condemned to the material. But just as Genesis 2 may depict a kind of all-inclusive historical event, could it be that Genesis 3 may depict something that is continually reenacted in all of humanity? So sin, you know, how, how is it that it works? It's not something we inherit. It's not a necessity, but it describes a beginning and world based on an improper goal and a kind of erroneous judgment. Maybe we're all born given the wrong goal and judgment. And the fall name's then not just an ancient event. I believe it's simultaneous with us all. We know that Adam, you know, in Genesis 3, turned away from God, bringing about a kind of illusory, death-dealing world. And this false world of Adam, maybe we, you know, the word Adam just means human. Maybe this is humanity outside of Christ. It repeats itself in every representative of Adam. You know, Adam's sin corrupts God's creation, gives us an illicit source but we all repeat Adam's story, becoming hostile to God, in which our very mode of coming into the world is damaged. And so sin creates a kind of world of its own, a history of its own, not truly God's creation. I think we have two fundamentally opposed beginnings. We have the kind of fantastical, self-actualized human, Adam of chapter 3, or Adam in every man. And then we have the true human being in Christ. And so Christ, in the picture of Paul in Romans 5, I think here, he contains all of human nature, all of Adam within himself, and he is completing creation. He's bringing it to perfection. Christ, as Paul says, is the true Adam. Christ, you know, in Genesis 2, we are created in the image of God. But of course, that is completed and made a reality in Christ. And so Christ is the true Adam. He manifests Adam. He makes Adam into a real historical phenomenon. 
Maximus the confessor declares that with Paul all the ages and the beings existing within those ages receive their beginning and end in Christ. He equates creation with incarnation. I think that's what Paul is doing in this Colossian passage. As Paul says, Christ is all in all. Christ is the true beginning. Jesus is the center. And when we say Jesus, we mean the person, Jesus Christ, that we encounter in the Gospels. It's not simply as beginning, though, but as the very substance. Here is the image of God, the substance of the image. This is what Hebrews 11 1 says, the substance of things hoped for. So we're not talking about some abstraction here. We're talking about history. We're not talking about a theory, but we're talking about a person. Christ is the very substance of, of the image. And the incarnation of Christ, the person of Christ, is the truth of all persons. What is a person? Well, we know that in the historical Jesus. Here is the true beginning of all things. Here is where our true beginning is. And of course, a false incarnation is the obstruction, the turning away from this reality. False incarnation is grasping or enfleshing the wrong image, focused on maybe an imaginary ego is the way they put it in psychology. But actually, Paul says the same thing in Romans 7, focused on a kind of spectral image. As if personhood is made up of something other than the true person who is Christ. Maybe we could say the comparison is something on the order of Platonism and Christianity. You know, in Platonism we can talk about eternal and transcendent truths. But in Christ we're talking about a person. We're talking about history. Perfection. This is what Colossians is saying is only brought about in Christ. The Garden of Eden, you know, clearly is not complete. It's not perfection. Adam's desire, as Paul describes it, becomes twisted around the law. I think when Paul is talking about I, he's really describing the garden. I did not know what it was to sin apart from the law, apart from the commandment. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Adam, you know, Paul, every man, I think that's what Paul's describing, the human condition, is that we trade what is divine and ultimate for what is created. And we imagine that we can put our ultimate desire on what is finite. We can trade the creator for the creation. Maximus describes this in some detail, and actually it it sounds very much like a psychoanalytic picture in a Lacanian kind of interpretation called the death drive, how we become self-destructive. Here's Maximus. Thus our life became filled with much groaning, a life that honors the occasions of its own destruction, and which out of ignorance invents and cherishes excuses for corruption. Thus the one human nature was cut up into myriad parts, were split against ourselves, and we who are one and of the same nature devour each other like wild animals, pursuing pleasure out of self-love, 
and for the same reason being anxious to avoid pain. We contrive the birth of untold numbers of destructive passions. Here is false incarnation. Here is false creation. Humankind always eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humankind always flees from paradise in the effort to produce life on their own from out of what is deadly. And I believe this is what Paul is describing in Romans 7. It is possible to create a death-dealing dynamic which he says embodies the letter of the law. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the false principle of the law made absolute, a law unto itself. This is the Jewish problem, but this is the human problem. The law made absolute is the manifest principle of absolutizing what is finite, of worshiping the creation as creator, or of a kind of self-deification. Just as Paul pictures the reversal of Romans 7 in Romans 8, so too all humanity is involved in this reversal brought about by Christ. Let me quote Jordan here. Adam represents the universal fact that every person causes the fall and that therefore every person empowered by Christ's personal human freedom must freely undo that fall. After all, God's intention and will and desire in creating at all is not principally to make a created order, an impersonal hierarchy of variously arranged essences, his goal is to create free, unique, ultimately deified persons. There is a logos of every person, and every person's logos is also Christ, the logos. Creation's perfection, its true beginning and end, is nothing less than the personal perichoresis, the personal joining with Christ. And there we behold him, as Paul says, face to face. And so this first creation is in Paul's description, you know, the false creation of Genesis 3, the false creation that we all undergo, is suspended by the second creation. But it's a work in process, right? Maybe because it's not done yet. It's not as yet truly creation. God's work is not finished. The world is not complete. It happened, Maximus says, because the disposition of human will has not yet been fully extracted from its passionate fixation on the flesh, and because they have not been completely imbued by the Spirit. Where is the Spirit? We're being given the Spirit. We're being brought up into the Spirit. And so Maximus pictures the process, you know, of these two beginnings. The mode of our spiritual birth from God is twofold. The first bestows on those born in God the entire grace of adoption, which is entirely present in potential. The second ushers in this grace as entirely present in actuality. What is potential in our birth is made actual in Christ, transforming voluntarily the entire free choice of the one being born so that it conforms to God. That is, in 
Being born, we did not ask to be born, but being born in Christ, our choice plays a part. The first possesses this grace in potential according to faith alone. The second, in addition to faith, realizes on the level of knowledge the active, most divine likeness of God who is known in the one who knows him. In those in whom the first mode of birth is observed, it happens that because the disposition of their will has not yet been fully extracted from its passionate fixation on the flesh, were caught up in the world of Adam in Genesis 3, and because they have not been completely imbued by the Spirit, with active participation in the divine mysteries taking place. So Christ extracts humanity from captivity by the beginning described in Genesis 3, which we all repeat. As Paul says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the process that we're involved in. The first birth through Christ is no longer a form of bondage, but an opening to birth in the spirit. Though bodily and spiritual birth, you know, it seems there's always a separation, right? There's a separation between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. There's a separation between our physical, literal birth and our birth in Christ. But maybe the separation is because of sin. You know, in Freudian terms, we would be our own father, or we would make ourselves. And then we turn to Christ. But I believe there's an inevitable passing through these two moments, as this first birth is the means to the second birth. So there are two distinct beginnings. There's the phenomenological beginning experience with our physical birth, the bringing forth of a kind of false ego or I, a false incarnation. And this must be undone by the second and true birth in the Spirit through the Son. It must be fulfilled or completed. For by Him all things were created, including you. All things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, spiritual and material, whether thrones or rulers or authorities. They were all created for him and through him. He is before all things. Christ on the cross, Christ resurrected, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is holding all things together. He is all in all. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here is the beginning. Here is rebirth. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God, the complete image of God is given to us. And in imitating him, then we take up that image. And through him he has reconciled to himself all things. Whether on earth, whether in Cairo, Missouri, whether in Moberly, Missouri, and then we could go through and name ourselves. He's reconciled each of us to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the good news of Easter. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.